to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 22nd, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Zelensky travels to Washington. Algeria slams the EU's gas price cap. Twitter is accused of secretly boosting a U.S. covert propaganda campaign. New York Representative-elect George Santos faces serious questions about his resume. Peru's Congress tentatively approves plans for early elections. A coup attempt is foiled in Gambia. Musk says he'll step down as Twitter's CEO. Freezing temperatures in the U.S. draw concerns over migrants. Scotland begins voting on amendments to the Reform Gender Recognition Bill. And Germany returns Benin bronzes to Nigeria. We begin with day 301 with the Ukraine conflict as Zelensky arrives in Washington. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Associated Press, DW, Reuters, and Ukraine Forum. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrived in Washington on Wednesday, where he met with U.S. President Joe Biden with the aim of strengthening the resilience and defense capacities of Ukraine. During his first foreign trip since the start of the invasion, Zelensky thanked ordinary people, Americans. He is set to give a speech to Congress and hold a number of meetings later in the day. Meanwhile, just hours before Zelensky landed in the U.S., the Biden administration announced a further $1.85 billion package in military support for Ukraine, along with the first-ever shipment of a Patriot missile battery to Ukrainian forces from the U.S. The deal will include around $1 billion in weapons and about $850 million in funding to the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. On the ground, Zelensky said he visited the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut on Tuesday, which has been under siege by Russian forces for months. The president claimed he had issued awards to the servicemen who have so far resisted fierce efforts, reportedly led by mercenaries from the Russian Wagner Group, to seize the urban area, saying, quote, Ukraine is proud of you. I am proud of you. Elsewhere, a surprise journey has reportedly been made to Beijing by former Russian President Dmitry Medvedev. A video posted to the now deputy chairman of Russia's Security Council's Telegram account showed the politician meeting with PRC President Xi Jinping. Medvedev said the two had discussed the conflict in Ukraine as well as the no-limits strategic partnership between their two nations. Meanwhile, in a televised address to senior military officials, Russian President Putin on Wednesday claimed that Russia is not to blame for the war in Ukraine and that it was instead, quote, the result of the policy of third countries, and specifically NATO expansionism. This theory has been repeatedly dismissed by the West. Finally, according to reports from a member of the Ukrainian presidential office, Kirilo Timoshenko on Telegram, five civilians were killed and 17 more injured in Russian attacks on Ukraine over the past day. Of those killed, four allegedly died in strikes in the Donetsk region. Thank you, Eric, for laying out the facts and updating us on the Ukraine situation. Here on the show, we separate the facts from the narrative spin, and we have a few narratives here attached to this story. Our anti-Russia narrative is provided by PBS NewsHour. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet Union even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. 
This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And National Security Archive gives us a pro-Russian narrative. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And from time to time, we have a statistics-based nerd narrative provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. There is a 15% chance that Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Algeria slams the European Union over its gas price cap. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Euractive, Economic Times, ANSA Media, Al Jazeera, Euro Observer, and the Arab News. On Tuesday, Algeria, Africa's largest gas exporter, criticized the EU's recent decision to cap natural gas prices as an intervention disrupting the international energy market. The North African country's energy minister, Mohamed Arkab, rejected the EU's idea of limiting prices for natural gas amid increased energy costs, noting that the move would have a negative impact on the flow of investment into the industry. Speaking at the fourth German-Algerian Energy Day in Algiers, he condemned the 27-nation bloc for its unilateral measures and warned against the price cap's alleged destabilizing effect on international energy markets while urging limitless, non-discriminatory prices. Algeria's criticism comes a day after the EU energy ministers on Monday agreed on a natural gas price cap at 180 euros, or $191, per megawatt hour after weeks of talks on the emergency measure. The gas price ceiling mechanism can take effect beginning February 15, 2023. Algeria is Europe's third-largest gas supplier, and the EU is seeking to scale up energy trade with the North African country as part of its efforts to diversify supplies away from Russia. To that end, the EU has also offered Algeria a long-term strategic partnership for gas, renewables, and hydrogen. During the German-Algerian Energy Day, Algeria's state-owned oil company, Sonatrach, and Germany's VNG Attorney General signed a memorandum of understanding to build Algeria's first green hydro plant, which will reportedly have a production capacity of 50 megawatts of electricity from solar power. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. We have three spins emerging from this one, beginning with an establishment-critical narrative coming from Bloomberg. The EU's price cap not only destabilizes the energy market, but is also set to exacerbate the EU energy crisis and expose Europeans to supply shortages, as liquefied natural gas suppliers may favor Asia if prices are higher there. While the EU celebrates itself for finally agreeing on the price break, the ill-considered mechanism may help prevent extreme price hikes, yet it might ultimately undermine the EU's prosperity and social cohesion. And there's a pro-establishment narrative provided by national interest. The destabilizing factor is not the EU price cap, but Algeria's geopolitical games and its proven willingness to weaponize its gas supplies. This is especially true in light of its growing ties with Russia and Iran. 
it's counterproductive and even dangerous for the EU to increase its dependence on Algeria to break away from Russia. The time has come for Washington and the EU to hold Moscow's ally accountable with sanctions. And Narrative C is being provided by Concilium. By agreeing on a temporary price cap, the EU not only proved its ability to act, but also lived up to its responsibility to shield its citizens from spiraling gas prices. Moreover, the deal provides a suspension mechanism if risks to the security of energy supply, financial stability, intra-EU flows of gas, or risks of increased gas demand come to light. With this breakthrough achievement, a united EU has shown shrewd strategic foresight. You know, my daughters have forced me to put a gas cap on. It's not energy gas, but, you know, it's a gas cap. I lost my gas cap last week. I had to order one from the dealership. Gosh, that was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Twitter making the news once again as it secretly boosted a U.S. covert propaganda campaign. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Intercept, Fox News, Daily Mail, TRT World, New York Post, and Al Jazeera. After reviewing internal documents at Twitter, journalist Lee Fang released his eighth installation of the Twitter files on Tuesday, alleging that the company had been complicit in psychological operations undertaken by the Pentagon targeting Middle Eastern audiences. The Pentagon, which had allegedly deployed a number of affiliated accounts to influence the opinion in Arabic-speaking countries, reportedly asked Twitter to whitelist these accounts in 2017 and then removed any explicit connection to the U.S. government. The accounts dealt with a variety of topics, mainly related to U.S. adversaries in the Middle East, including anti-Iran messaging, support for U.S.-backed armed groups in Syria, and claims that U.S. drone strikes in Yemen did not kill civilians. This report is in stark contrast with Twitter spokesperson Nick Pickles' testimony before Congress in 2020, in which he stressed that the platform's efforts against government influence operations were a so-called top priority. The U.S. government legally affirmed clandestine psychological operations, including running fake social media accounts for propaganda in Section 1631 of the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act purportedly to counter disinformation campaigns by Russia, China, and other foreign actors. Following Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter in October, internal documents at the company have been shared with several journalists at non-mainstream publications in a series dubbed, quote, The Twitter Files. Thank you, Eric. We have a few narrative spins attached to this story. Narrative A is provided by Intercept. These revelations are a damning indictment of how the U.S. government uses social media to advance its geopolitical interests across the globe. In addition to that, Twitter was complicit with the government's operations, which is a clear violation of both its policies and public trust. Twitter cannot and should not be used to advance the interests of the U.S. government. And New York Magazine is giving us narrative B for this story. Though aspects of the Twitter files have been productive in terms of transparency, Elon Musk is guilty of the same things he has accused companies and journalists of. The Twitter files are not meant to advance the interests of the public, but the interests of the GOP and right-wing actors, caveat emptor. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They say there's a 3% chance that Elon Musk will hold major political office in the United States before February 2033. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. 
Our next story centers around U.S. politics and New York Representative-elect Santos' resume allegations, which are very serious. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NPR Online News, Bloomberg, Politico, and Business Insider. A top Republican in Nassau County, New York, says that Representative-elect George Santos's reportedly erroneous resume details are serious, but that he deserves an opportunity to clear his name. The controversy stems from a recent New York Times article that claims Santos lied about attending Baruch College, which the university has no record of, as well as claiming that he worked at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. The banks also have no record of his employment. There are also questions about Santos's salary and experience at the DeVolder organization, which Santos claimed a family firm. The business was registered in Florida, but it was deemed temporarily inactive for not filing its required annual reports. Santos and his attorney Joe Murray labeled the Times report as a hit piece, with Murray adding that the left is so threatened by a gay Latino immigrant and Republican who won a Biden district. Democrats are calling on Santos to resign, labeling him unfit to serve. Incoming House Democratic leader Representative Hakeem Jeffries, the Democrat from New York, says it's an open question as to whether or not Santos should be seated in Congress, but says he appears to be a complete and utter fraud. Despite the controversy, Santos will likely be seated as a member of the incoming Congress. He has expressed support for GOP leader Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House, and House Republicans are unlikely to support removing him. Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. And as expected, a couple of political spins beginning with a Democratic narrative coming from Occupy Democrats. George Santos' entire election campaign was built on lies. Not only did he fabricate his educational and professional backgrounds, but he also callously lied about working with victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting. Santos is a serial liar and is unfit to serve in the House of Representatives. And Democratic narratives are typically followed up by Republican narratives, and this one is provided by Fox News. Democrats and their cronies in the media are absolutely terrified by a gay Latino Republican winning in a blue district. So they are resorting to smear campaigns to stop Representative-elect George Santos just before he is sworn in. Santos has been in the public eye for a year and campaigned for months. So it's suspicious that these reports are only coming out now. Turning our attention to Peru as Congress tentatively approves plans for early elections. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Bloomberg, PBS NewsHour, Reuters, CNN and Al Jazeera. Peru's Congress tentatively approved on Tuesday a plan backed by President Dina Boarte to bring forward general elections by two years to April 2024, with 91 lawmakers of the 130-member legislature supporting it in a bid to alleviate the country's political crisis. The constitutional reform to shorten Boarte's term to July 2024 will require another vote of approval by a two-thirds majority in the next legislative period which starts after January 31, 2023. This comes days after another early elections proposal failed to garner enough votes after leftist legislators abstained, making conditional their support on the promise of an assembly to revise Peru's constitution. Following this provisional endorsement, Bolarte announced a handful of cabinet reshuffles on Wednesday, 
including appointing Defense Minister Alberto Otarola as Peru's new prime minister, despite criticism from left-wing lawmakers. As Defense Chief Otarola declared a state of emergency and deployed troops to the street to try to contain nationwide protests against the ousting of former President Pedro Castillo, some 26 people have died, according to health ministry data, as of Monday. Meanwhile, Lima expelled Mexico's ambassador and gave him 72 hours to leave in protest of alleged, quote, unacceptable interference by the Mexican president in Peru's internal affairs amid mounting tensions as Mexico has offered asylum to members of Castillo's family. Thank you, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative provided by Washington Post. The fact that Peru has already had six presidents since 2016 speaks volumes about the country's political situation and underscores what a difficult legacy Baluarte is taking on. It's a positive sign that the coup attempt by the ultra-leftist and corrupt Castillo failed, thanks to the resilience of Peruvians. If Baluarte now succeeds in forming a strong government and implementing structural reforms, there's a good reason for optimism for Peruvian democracy. And foreign policy gives us an establishment critical narrative. The ongoing protests highlight that the justified ouster of the unpopular Castillo is by no means the end of the ongoing political crisis in Peru. Poor Peruvians have legitimate doubts that the dysfunctional democratic system will change anything about their desperate situation. That's why snap elections would likely benefit populist candidates. It's uncertain whether Boarte will manage to keep Peru from becoming ungovernable. Our next story turns its attention to Gambia, whose government says a coup attempt was foiled. And here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Al Jazeera, Voice of America, and BBC News. According to a government announcement released on Wednesday, four Gambian soldiers have been arrested after authorities foiled an alleged coup attempt to overthrow President Adama Barrow's administration. In a statement, the government said the alleged coup attempt was uncovered based on intelligence reports adding that the army is in pursuit of the three other alleged co-conspirators. Coup attempts aren't uncommon in the West African country of 2.5 million people. Former President Yahya Jammeh, who himself gained power through a coup in 1994, foiled several attempts to overthrow him until he was ousted in the 2016 election. Barrow also faced a coup attempt staged by Jammeh's military aides a year after taking power. Jame was forced into exile after his defeat in 2016, with many senior army officers leaving simultaneously. Barrow has since been wary of the military, with troops from neighboring Senegal in charge of his personal security and the main international airport and seaport guarded by troops from Nigeria and Ghana, respectively. Barrow's use of foreign security personnel coupled with his decision to break away from the United Democratic Party which pushed him to power in 2016 and formed the National People's Party, or NPP, has stoked discontent among the Gambian people. Despite the previous coup attempt involving former Jamey aides, the Barrow government's statement didn't include any details on whether this alleged plot was linked to the previous regime. Those were the facts, and we have two spins. The first one is an establishment-critical narrative coming from The Standard. After promising to prioritize tackling corruption during his 2016 campaign, President Barrow has since done very little to rid his government of greedy side-door financial schemes. Public discontent will only grow as its leaders continue to turn a blind eye 
and offer no concrete solutions to help the people it's supposed to represent. And that narrative is followed up by a pro-establishment narrative provided by Africa Times. Though his decision to align with the National People's Party coalition has ruffled some feathers, Barrow's actions are based on his goal of cleaning up the economic mess left by Jamey and maintaining a strong, unified Gambia. Political discontent is no excuse for attempting to overthrow the democratically elected government, and those responsible should be pursued and punished. In our next story, Elon Musk to step down as Twitter CEO. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNBC, Independent, Financial Times, Sky News, and CBS. On Tuesday, Elon Musk said he would resign as Twitter's CEO as soon as he finds a replacement, having agreed to either stay on or step down from the role based on a Twitter poll launched on Sunday. The poll ended with a 57.5% of more than 17 million users voting for Musk to leave his role. However, the vote is informal and it's unclear when he will step down. In response to the poll, Musk tweeted, quote, As the saying goes, be careful what you wish as you might get it. Musk previously claimed nobody wanted the job as Twitter's CEO who could, quote, actually keep Twitter alive. Musk, who is also CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, previously signaled he would eventually give up the Twitter position. Musk told a Delaware judge in November he planned to reduce his time at Twitter and, quote, find somebody else to run Twitter over time. Tesla shares, which had sunk 11% over the past month, increased by 5% in pre-market trading after the poll result was revealed on Monday. Twitter could potentially be on pace to lose $4 billion a year, confirming Musk's claims that the platform's finances are dire. Musk acquired Twitter for $44 billion in October, promising to improve free speech and eliminate fake accounts. Musk revealed that he will still continue to run Twitter's software and server teams. He is also reportedly considering only allowing those who are part of Twitter Blue, a paid subscription service, to participate in polls concerning policy in the future. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. We have several narratives that are spinning away from this story. We have a narrative A, and it's provided by CNN. Since Musk took control, Twitter has been subjected to reckless decisions, leaving it in a chaotic state. Stepping down as CEO would be the start of cleaning up the mess he has made. However, his replacement needs to be someone who understands that the protection of users comes before the whims of an erratic billionaire. InfoWars is giving us a narrative B. While Musk has made some questionable decisions, this latest move isn't one of them. Involving users in key decisions is a refreshing overhaul to Twitter's and the broader tech world's policymaking which is dominated by only a select few. Others should take heed. And a cynical narrative written by Verge. Given that Twitter is mainly made up of software and servers, Musk is set to keep de facto control of the company even if he's not CEO. As is the case with other companies, it's unlikely a change in his title will bring an end to his leadership. Freezing temperatures in the U.S. draw a concern for migrants. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by Guardian, Fox News, CBS, Washington Post, and CNN. With around 33 million people reportedly under winter storm watches and close to 27 million under wind chill alerts in the U.S., 
concerns have increased for recently arrived migrants who lack shelter and those who will be making crossings. In many cities, including El Paso, Texas, shelter systems are strained, and photos of migrants attempting to stay warm while living in the streets have gone viral. In Denver, Colorado, Mayor Michael Hancock declared a state of emergency last week as nearly 900 migrants have unexpectedly arrived in the last few months, including 600 since December 2nd. This will allow the city, which has spent 800000 on migrant shelters, to access extra resources. Denver will be using recreation centers and other city facilities, including libraries, to serve as shelters and migrant reception centers. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott has deployed the National Guard to cut off major entry points in anticipation of a surge of migrants because of a scheduled end to Title 42, a Trump-era immigration policy that allowed the U.S. to expel migrants to prevent the spread of COVID. On Monday, the Supreme Court issued a temporary hold on the policy's termination, which had been set to expire on Wednesday after several Republican-led states issued an emergency appeal. While the Biden administration urged the court to reject the motion, it asked for the deadline to be delayed until at least December 22nd amid the influx of migrants. Thank you, Adam, for the facts. And our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. The Biden administration has failed to meet its constitutional duty to secure the border, putting states in an untenable situation where their safety is at risk and their resources are being stretched thin. If Title 42 ends, this crisis will only get worse. And of course, there's a democratic narrative provided by Guardian. This is undoubtedly a crisis, but a humanitarian one. These migrants have been through indescribable experiences, and it's time that the federal government and the states work together to find a solution and give these people a fresh start. Turning our attention to Scotland as they are expected to reform the gender recognition bill. And here are the facts as agreed upon by The Times, Sky News, ABC, and BBC News. Members of Scottish Parliament, MSPs, began voting on Tuesday on over 150 proposed amendments to the Gender Recognition Act. Though voting paused at around midnight after the Holyrood Chamber's lights, which are on a timer, went out. Among the amendments, MSPs rejected a proposal to retain the minimum age of 18 required to transition genders. Instead, the leading Scottish National Party, or SNP, approved lowering the age to 16, claiming it's in line with other existing rights for 16-year-olds like voting, marriage, and leaving home. Another SNP-led proposal, if passed, would allow people to transition by self-declaration, removing the pre-existing requirement of a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria. They argue it simplifies transgender people's ability to acquire government documents in line with their identity. In response to the rejection by MPs of one of one of the more controversial aspects of the bill that would have made it harder for sex offenders to apply for a Gender Recognition Certificate, or GRC, members of the public in the gallery chanted, Shame on all of you! The SNP previously shelved the bill's proposed changes in the face of backlash from some senior SNP politicians, along with women's groups and individuals including Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, who fear the amendments could endanger women and girls, particularly in single-sex spaces. The new provisions would distinguish law in Scotland from the rest of the UK, where transitioning still requires a medical diagnosis. 
The news also comes amid a similar vote in Spain, which could allow 16-year-olds to freely transition and those as young as 12 to do so with the judge's approval. The left narrative on this story is provided by NewsBud. As transgender self-identification is already the standard for roughly 350 million people worldwide, the opposition to this bill is rooted simply in the historic demonization of the LGBTQ community. Just as lesbians and gays in the past were portrayed as potential child predators, so too are transgender people today. The opposition movement was born out of ignorance and hate. The same is true today. And a right narrative is being provided by Telegraph. Though the hardcore proponents of this bill will paint it as such, opposing this bill is in no way transphobic. Both the Scottish public and even members of the SNP are against allowing male sex offenders from claiming they are women. But the powers that be have decided to ignore both of these groups. This will become the greatest rollback on women's rights in generations and a disgraceful stain on the reputation of Parliament. And in our final story today, Germany has returned Benin bronzes to Nigeria. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, CNN, BBC News, Al Jazeera, DW, and Reuters. Germany has returned 22 Benin bronzes from its museums to Nigeria as part of a larger part of Western nations to repatriate stolen artifacts from Africa. The Benin bronzes are plaques and sculptures that were looted in 1897 from the ancient kingdom of Benin, which is now southern Nigeria and not the modern nation-state of Benin, by British military personnel. Earlier this year, Germany signed an agreement with Nigeria to release its 1,130 Benin bronzes in Germany public museums. Nigeria has called this agreement the first of its kind. With German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock saying it was part of an effort for Germany to deal with its dark colonial history. Nigerian authorities estimate more than 5,000 artifacts were stolen from Nigeria by England when it was the country's colonizer. Most of the treasures were stolen from the Kingdom of Benin, and some ended up in the custody of other foreign governments such as Germany. Nigeria will celebrate the return of the first bronzes with an exhibition featuring the artifacts in early 2023. Germany's returns are likely to increase pressure on the British Museum in London, which holds the largest collection of Benin bronzes. Nigeria's information minister called on the British Museum to release the 900 Benin bronzes it has. Thank you, Adam, for the facts. And we have a couple of spins, beginning with the left narrative coming from Al Jazeera. The return of these artifacts is long overdue. It is significant that Germany is making efforts to deal with its colonial past, and it is time that other Western nations follow suit. Artifacts stolen during colonial times should be repatriated to their countries of origin. And the right narrative is provided by Guardian. Western museums serve as a nuanced purpose and should not just automatically bow to calls to return artworks acquired during a colonial past. Current discourses on decolonizing museums speak in absolutes of good and bad, instead of looking at the subtle histories of empires beyond a focus on colonial violence. To decolonize museums is to decontextualize museums and remove the multicultural histories of Western nations.
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, December 22nd, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you would like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.